Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson. It's August 4th, and this is episode number 67. Well, just ahead, what happened to all the rental cars? We'll take a look at Avis. Plus, the company behind a new technology that can sniff out narcotics like fentanyl. And attempting to feed the world one genetically modified frankenfish at a time, we're going to talk to the Aqua Bounty CEO, Sylvia Wolf. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Well, click the subscribe button and follow us so you make sure to download every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move, and we've got business news, the three most important developments in the world of business today with executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac? Hey, Corey, as we wait off, as, as we wait for that July unemployment report that's out Friday morning, a report from ADP today showing the private sector added about half the number of jobs economists had expected in July. This is fueling concerns about a slowdown and the economic rebound from the pandemic. Now, this report is typically an Im- imprecise indicator of the monthly non-farm payroll report that we're going to get on Friday. Friday's official jobs report is still expected to reflect a pickup in hiring. Yeah, ADP is usually on the money, but every once in a while, it's it's way off. So we'll see. We'll see on Friday. On to the Fed, a key architect of the Federal Reserve's new policy strategy, Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida, says an interest rate hike is likely in 2023, given the surprising pace of the economic recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. The remarks open the door to the possibility of the Fed taking a quicker path toward reducing its support for the economy than had been anticipated. And finally, Uber saying its ridership rebounded strongly in the most recent quarter from last year's pandemic lows. Uber also says its food delivery showed signs of strength, even as in-restaurant dining, pardon me, picked up. Uber is among the companies that were both walloped by the pandemic as cities went into lockdown and ridership plummeted. And it benefited, though, from people stuck at home turning in record numbers to food delivery. Interesting times uh, for Uber. Um, And we'll see what what behaviors persist post-pandemic, especially as it relates to food delivery, which has been, you know, a kind of a lousy business uh, for the restaurants, at least. I don't know about you, though, but I've been taking, I've started taking Ubers again. So uh, we'll see. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on? Well, why don't we start with our old friends, Devon Energy. Devon Energy, DVN shares fell 3.5% today, but they've gained 128% in a year. What's new with Devon? Uh, earnings today. Well, remember we had the interview with Rick Moncrief uh, a few weeks ago. 
mm-hmm. of my favorite interviews that we've done on this show. I mean, they've all been, you know, surprisingly good for a change. But that was a very good one. If you haven't listened to that one, make sure you go back and listen to that uh, Devon Energy uh, interview. Uh, even if you're not into the energy sector, it's a fascinating one about the, of the technology and the techniques they're using to make that business work. Well, they announced earnings today uh, and a uh, fantastic quarter for them. Uh, $2.4 billion in revenue. They pumped about 567 million barrels of oil and oil equivalents in the quarter. But what was interesting to me was how much money they lost on hedges. You know, uh, all the major oil companies will will use financial instruments to kind of protect their downside, but you protect the downside by giving away some of the upside. Oil prices went straight up. And during that quarter, they gave away a lot of money. They lost about $703 million on these hedges. So wow. uh, it was interesting to hear them talk about the hedges and how, um, you know, while they are still very hedged, uh, and this is a short sound, but I apologize for its brevity, but uh, it is interesting to me that they, they're trying to characterize, hey, we're pretty hedged now. We're going to be less hedged in the back half of the year. Next, we're very unhedged. Uh, here is CEO Rick Moncrief of Devon Energy. I think we need to just remind everyone that we were about 50% hedged on on crude this year, but the profile of that is about 60% first half, 40% the second half, and, and currently we're about 20% hedged uh, as we look into 22. So maybe those hedges, if the oil prices do continue to stay high and indeed surge next year, who knows if we get that Fed rate cut, maybe that slows down the economy, maybe that uh, hurts oil prices, I don't know. But uh, these guys are definitely going to expose themselves to more upside uh, in next year. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Avis Budget Group. Avis Budget Group uh, trades under CAR, C-A-R. Shares fell 16% today, but they've gained 194% in a year. What's new with Avis Budget? Well, you, did you rent? You were away a couple times this summer. Did you rent cars at all in this in these trips? No, we didn't rent cars. We took cabs, Ubers, oh trains, planes. Uh, the boats. prices for these rentals were through the roof. I think I paid more in two weeks of rental cars this summer than I paid in about nine, ten weeks of last summer. Wow! Um, and uh, sure enough, it's right in the Avis numbers. So uh, Avis, the revenues two point four billion dollars. It's two hundred twelve percent above the previous year. Their adjusted earnings um, in the U in the U.S. six hundred thirty-four million dollars, but eight million dollars in profit internationally. It is principally a U.S. business, but uh, the they give you lots of details. And I went down kind of a rabbit hole modeling out Avis, which I'd never done before. It's kind of that's how I have fun. That's how I get my yayas on with my financial models. Uh huh. Disconcerting, um, but it's a true fact. So their average revenue per day, all right, two years ago. Let's go back to two thousand nineteen was in the U.S. was $55.90. Their average revenue per day in the most recent quarter, two years later, $79. So they go from $54, $56, call it, to $79, just charging like crazy. Uh, the number of cars, meanwhile, is, is a big factor here. So the total vehicle count in 2019, at the end of the June quarter, was uh, – 683,169 cars. So 683,000 cars. Their total vehicle count now is all the way down to 509,000 cars. In fact, it's even lower than it was last year. So these guys got rid of their fleet. Where'd they go? Where, what'd they do with them? Sell them? Well, they, they stopped buying them and they sold them like crazy. They sell their used cars and they didn't replace them all. Indeed, they brought their fleet down from 683,000 to 509,000 in two years. Now, of course, that, that with when demand came back, 
There are no rental cars to be had, and they just jacked the prices. But I, I you know, I found it. Or I'm just going to go there. The CFO was kind of outrageous, saying it's not my fault. I can charge whatever I charge. We don't even set the prices. People just pay it. So rather mm-hmm. than kind of do a nice thing by the customer and maybe not charge the most they possibly can at every given second, they just the the, the pricing that they took was outrageously high compared to what they'd taken in previous years. And the CFO sort of denies any culpability for the prices. Here's Brian Choi, the CFO of Avis Budget. We at Avis do not set rental car prices. We discover price as determined by consumer demand and the availability of supply in the industry, right? So with that disclaimer out of the way, let's just break down those two components, right? First is consumer demand and and within consumer demand, let's just start with leisure demand. So domestically, like people have been cooped up for a year, savings are high, international travel is largely unavailable. So it's, it's natural that in the Americas, we're seeing outsized consumer demand from the leisure segment. Now, is that gonna remain elevated in perpetuity? Of course not, right? But could it last for some time? I think so. So, so we see like, I think continued strength in the consumer, uh, in the consumer segment um, uh, currently. But conversely, commercial demand right now is pretty depressed. So while, while we will be seeing increases uh, in that segment, uh, the commercial, especially large commercial, uh, comes with lower rates. So that normalization of business mix is going to cause some downward pressure uh, on RPD. So again, so the, the revenue per, per day for their cars uh, maybe down, would have, would have been even higher if there was business travel as in addition to this giant consumer demand. But they lessen the number of cars and they're taking, um, you know, that claim that they don't set the price is just ridiculous. Yeah. This phrase that he used, discovery pricing, give me a break. Profiteering. I mean, I'm all for like, everyone should make some money, but I don't, I don't know what relationship you have with your customers over the long term. If, if you, if you uh, rake them over the coals when you get the chance to do so. Right. I mean, that's not the kind of company that I go back to. But we don't set the prices. Harvard's own Brian Choi. (laughs) No. But, you know, I I, uh, I have to say it seems like just a knee-jerk reaction when the pandemic started, when they apparently let go of their fleet. That seems very not uh, – didn't practice much foresight there. Well, I, I think I think things have come back just so so much stronger than everyone, including, you know, the Federal Reserve, right? We talked about that a little earlier. I mean, that's, that's a response to the economy is just going gangbusters right now. Corey, what is your next drill down? I want to look at a company that we've never talked about before called 908 Devices with okay, a great nine, stock ticker. Yeah, Mass. 908 Devices trades under Mass, M-A-S-S. Shares rose 8% today, but they've fallen 40% this year. So tell me about 908 Devices. Yeah, somewhat recent IPO. Uh, that that stock ticker, guess where, guess where the company's based? Massachusetts. That's it. And they make mass spectrometers. What is a mass spectrometer? Well, no it idea. is a... It is, it's a device used to figure out the composition of stuff. Um, and these are have been complex machines over the years. These guys have tried to take the complexity out with both handheld devices and desktop devices uh, of mass spectrometers. They're, and the, the way they work, they, they produce charged particles, ions, from the chemical substances that are going to be analyzed. And um, through that analysis, a mass spectrometer uses electrical and magnetic fields to measure the weight or the mass of the charged particles. So why is it called 908 Devices? Where does that come from? Um, more cleverness from the folks at 908 Devices. So uh, 
0.908 is the point of stability and instability within an ion uh, trap uh, of a mass spectrometer. It's the exact point where the magic happens, where they identify where something happens. And so there you go, 908 huh. devices. Small company, you know, about 500 million market cap, um, uh, or, you know, kind of in that range. I guess I could check the exact number. But but more importantly, um, their revenue, which they announced today in an earnings call, uh, they announced $8.3 million for three months. Um, and this business, uh, I think, is just so fascinating because of all the things that they can do with these things. I said 500 million. It's got a $914 million market cap. But mass spectrometers are used for all kinds of stuff. And their notion is that if they can bring them uh, the, they make the comparison to the iPhone. And they say, if you put a great camera on an iPhone, you're going to take more pictures. If you put a mass spectrometer on, on a scientist's desktop, they don't have to send it out to the lab to be analyzed. They're just going to do more analysis. So they're trying to bring the mass spectrometers to the masses. Uh, it's not my pun. That's actually one that they use. But scientists use it on a lab to see what they're looking at. Um, proteomics are developed trying to analyze um, what the substances are, the proteins that they're mixing to create new magic uh, based on proteomics. Geologists use it to figure out the exact composition of a rock. Um, law enforcement uses it to see if fentanyl is what they're looking at when they're looking at some kind of pills of some kind. Uh, COVID treatments were designed using mass spectrometers to see if they had the exact cocktail uh, of drugs that they wanted to administer to, to patients. And on the conference call, they even talked about the plant-based meat business are using mass spectrometers to figure out if they have just the right mix uh, of their new types of meats. When we think about our total addressable market, you know, it, it's certainly a piece of what we've shared in the past, and, but it is rapidly growing and, and, and it is looking exciting to us, but it's very much bioprocess. Um, so they're, they're optimizing a cell culture media. They're, they're trying to get the highest tiger and production of, of proteins out of that. Um, so very analogous to, to what happens with our, our, our biopharma customers. And so, so really we've been marketing uh, to the bioprocess industry of which many of the life science uh, uh, companies we see out there also beginning to serve this, this uh, adjacent space of the, the cultured meat market. Um, so we are uh, beginning to, to target uh, some areas of, of marketing and, and our channels and outreach, of course, to that. Uh, it is a relatively small uh, field still at this, this moment in time. There's been significant invest, investments, uh, billions of dollars that have gone into it, and, and there's, there's, there's uh, tens and tens of uh, startups there that are working uh, and that are pretty well-funded and, and are looking for new ways uh, to measure and be efficient in their process. You know, they don't have a, a standard in-house laboratory in many cases, and they are looking for things that can be used efficiently at line. So, so we are excited about that opportunity. We are seeing that they, uh, the, the handful of examples we have thus far are, are moving through our funnel uh, quite quickly uh, from initial contact to, to opportunity to, to close. So I, I just think the business, the science is so interesting. When he mentions titers, that's a reference to um, the concentration of whatever companies or scientists or whatever is trying to create in something that they're doing. And the notion that you can measure that with such accuracy with a more readily available uh, mass spectrometer is the hope of 908 devices. All right, let's move on to another really interesting science project. That is Aquabounty, the company making genetically modified salmon that grow big really fast. Now they're coming out into the world. Is there, is there an audience for this? We'll have to listen and see what you think to the Aquabounty CEO, Sylvia Wolf. She joins us in just a moment. But first. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. 
Air's event access and monitoring intelligence platform, improves earnings season and the investor events in between. Through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at era, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod. And check out our website at bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the drill down. We are joined right now by uh, Sylvia Wolf who's the CEO of a fascinating company called Aquabounty. Glad to have you with us on the Drill Down podcast. Uh, talk to me about Aquabounty. What, what problem are you guys trying to solve? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. The problem that we're trying to solve is twofold. One, we need to feed an awful lot of people, which means we've got a double protein production, and aquaculture is going to play a major role. But for aquaculture to do that without um, a detrimental effect on the environment, we need to think about farming differently. And so we are using land-based recirculating aquaculture systems to be able to farm salmon. And our salmon was really, um, it wasn't originally intended to, but is actually well-designed to thrive in that type of an environment. Yeah, well, we can get to the history of the company because it's, it's a fascinating one, a long one. When was the company first founded? So it's a quite Founded a while, back right? in the um, early '90s um, as a private company funded by a vision, you know, a visionary entrepreneur uh, who licensed the technology from um, Memorial University in Canada. And the problem that that researcher was trying to solve was to protect salmon in their very early vulnerable stages from dramatic swings in climatic conditions in the ocean. And essentially, it's it's created. It's, it, I don't want to skip the lead. This is a genetically modified salmon that grows faster, grows bigger. Um, now, nope. uh, grows, grows faster. So, so it is. It is a genetically engineered salmon that grows faster. Um, and the reason that it grows faster is the gene that was inserted was a growth hormone gene from a Chinook salmon. And what that enabled in the Atlantic salmon was a consistent eating pattern. So when they're very young and vulnerable, they eat consistently, which means they grow, they get through those stages faster, um, which is perfect for the type of environment that we're in where we want to conserve natural resources like feed, water, et cetera. And so the fact that it can grow faster is actually a benefit. Right. I guess what I was trying to say is that it gets to a, it gets to a mature size at a, right. at a, at a faster uh, pace. And so you can presumably... Among other things, have more, uh, if you want to kind of call, refer to it as a crop, you get more sort of crop rotations in a limited period of time. You are you're absolutely right. We, you, we produce more with less. Now, how did you guys end up with a, I know it's been a long uh, a trail. Initially, I guess the plan was to raise these fish in cages in the ocean, but now you're doing a land-based thing in Prince Edward Island and in Indiana, of all places. <laughs> that known that known salmon hotspot, Indiana. Yes, Exactly. Um, well, basically what we needed to do was raise the broodstock. And to do that, we needed to do it in a closed system. So we've actually been farming in a recirculating aquaculture system with our broodstock, mature salmon for 25 years as we went through the approval process. Because part of the approval process is to, to demonstrate stability in the genetic structure. So although that genetic engineering took place 30 years ago, we've actually been breeding our salmon conventionally since that point in time. And as you said, Indiana is probably not the first place you'd think of in terms of raising salmon, but this type of farming actually allows you to raise salmon close to consumption, which is another benefit. 
and you can do it in rural, you know, rural areas, which um, we like to think of it as just another form of agriculture. And did you build that that farm in Indiana, or did you was it did it have a prior purpose? It was a perch farm, and we purchased it out of bankruptcy and retrofitted it to be able to raise salmon. And it produces about 1,200 metric tons of our salmon on an annual basis. Now, uh, talk to me about the end market. So who to whom are you selling? We're well, not selling anything yet. Is that right? Oh, no, we are. We actually are. We started harvesting and selling um, in June, and we've, we're gradually ramping up production. Our primary target are seafood distributors who then sell to food service operations because that's where the majority of salmon is consumed. And there's been a lot of misinformation. So retailers have, have said, you know, at this point in time, we don't plan to um, carry genetically engineered salmon. But I think when they understand the, the real benefits, um, that they're going to rethink that position. Because it, typically what we hear is, well, that could be a risk to the environment. What happens with escape? Well, we've never had an escape in 25 years. Our farms are far from native salmon populations. We have six levels of physical containment in the farm because it's important to be biosecure for the salmon as well as the environment. And I think most importantly is the eggs that we ship from our broodstock facility in Canada are sterile females. So, you know, should they sprout wings, fly out of their tank, walk out of the building, they're unable to reproduce. Right. When the FDA reviewed this, I guess they determined that it was very unlikely that there would be any escape of the fish or the eggs. That's um, absolutely correct. I, yes. Are you with unlikely or are you with impossible? Is it is it possible that they could escape? I think anything's possible. Um, but if they did, they can't reproduce because they're sterile. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the I don't think that they can escape. Um, should an egg get out of our control? You know, that's a possibility, but we have stringent biosecurity and physical security parameters around our broodstock facility. Um, so I, I would say the likelihood is pretty close to zero. And what would the risk be if that were to happen? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, they talk Thank about you. destroying. That's it is job. a very interesting question because everyone talks about, you know, it's a risk to the wild population. Number one, that's never been proven. There's never been proven to be a detrimental effect. Right. To uh, uh, wild uh, population. Devil's advocate, you could say it's never been disproven either, right? Exactly. We just don't but know. You don't know. But the other, the, the flip side of that is, well, what if it's a benefit because our wild populations are actually significantly at risk right now because of climate change? And so, you know, we're not going to test the system, um, but the flip side could be just as true. So in other words, you, the, it may be it's true that genetically modified fish in the world would help fish survive. So it's as likely as as the flip side of that argument. Yeah. Um, so uh, when you talk about selling the fit, you know, when, when we, you know, whether I, I live in fancy, the fancy Bay Area or New York or whatever, but right. the movement towards organic, the movement towards natural is not a whole foods only phenomenon, right? This is what we see at Safeway and Kroger and every grocery company that we talk to on the drill down. And we, we it's it's a common theme that the margins are higher and that that's the move in, in are people yeah. really jonesing for genetically modified, you know, the, the, the argument is who wants a Frankenfish? So I guess. I don't, I don't mean to be point, pejorative. I'm just trying to take the. No, I, 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 You've heard I, the phrase. I certainly heard the phrase before. And what I would say is that is a very first nation and certain demographic viewpoint. We have a lot of people in this country that need healthy protein 
um, and making it affordable and accessible, which is what our fish provides, actually starts to help with some of the health problems that we're experiencing. Maybe you and I have the education and the income wherewithal to shop at Whole Foods and other retailers, but you know, there's a lot of people that struggle. Um, and so what we've really designed with our fish or what it provides is an affordable, accessible, and quality protein. And so I think, you know, that, that when you talk to people who are trying to put food on the table and they want to put the best food that they can on the table, there's a lot of those in this country. hundred percent. Um, I read something in your, in your 10 K that I didn't quite understand about something that happened last year where you, you gave a lot of fish to charity or something to that effect during the yeah. pandemic. What was, was it, were those the genetically modified fish and tell me what happened there. So those were the, we had actually started to raise conventional salmon and they okay. were coming to harvest weight just as COVID hit and demand dropped dramatically. And so did the price. And so because we had a number of our, of our aqua advantage fish already in process, we needed to make sure that we were cleaning, we were clearing out the tanks. And so we made the decision to offer those conventional salmon um, to food programs, food bank programs, because again, very healthy protein and, you know, why destroy it when you can use it to help people feed themselves? Um, and so you, you donated, how much, how much was donated? Presumably there was a tax I think we break did, with that too. I think we ended up close to 60 metric tons, something like that. Wow. Yeah. How do you do that? Like, how do you figure out, how, you can't call the local, uh, uh, you know, Fort Wayne food bank. Or I don't know if you're closer to Indianapolis and say, Hey, we've got 60 metric tons of salmon for we, you. We actually worked with a number of our distributors um, who have relationships with um, food banks. And there was quite a, you know, there was a movement to, to get as much fresh protein as we possibly could um, to food banks. And so we reached out to that network. Um, you know, Feeding America is a, is a big opportunity because it's a network of food banks. And so we were able to use our fish, we think, um, to provide, you know, healthy protein during COVID. Now, do we know the the, the sort of physical long-term effects on people who, who consume this fish? Has that been studied? Oh, yeah. 25 years of testing by the FDA. And here's the other thing I'd say is, um, you know, we've been eating GMOs for, oh, 50 years. And I don't think we have a problem. Um, so, again, this whole movement of non-GMO, what that says is you're not going to allow biotechnology to solve a number of the challenges that we're going to face globally, like drought, like pests, like weeds. And so your productivity can actually go up when you use tools like biotechnology, which is what we've done with our fish. And so well-regulated, well-studied, which certainly our fish after 25 years, I can tell you that it is, I think we should be embracing these types of technologies. Well, we certainly, we've have done it in, in, in other crops, the non-protein crops. Exactly. Um, I, I'm curious about sort of the, 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 the unit cost and how it's very different than other fish, other salmon. Uh, can you talk to me about kind of what where that is in terms of what at, at the end market and then to you as a as a grower? Mm -hmm. The um, our goal was always to be able to compete on a delivered basis with um, salmon raised in net pens. And what I mean by that is, you know, they the salmon grow in cold water, and so they are grown off the coast of Norway, Chile, Scotland, but they have to be flown to those areas that don't have the ability to raise salmon like the US. So we import 400,000 metric tons of Atlantic salmon annually. And so on a delivered basis, we can be competitive with those net pen 
fish. It's a highly capital intensive type method of farming. Um, but the other benefit that it brings is it's biosecure. So no antibiotics, no disease, so no disease, no pests, no um, detrimental effect on the fish because of climate conditions. And so we think that this will be the method of the future and we wanna bring it to consumers at an affordable price. So you think you can match uh, the prices out there for Atlantic salmon? Because yeah. they, while they have cheaper ways of say disposing of, of, of nitrogen and wastewater and so on because they're in the ocean, you don't have that because you're in a farm, but you don't have the expense of flying the stuff around. Exactly, that's exactly so maybe right. Get to that price, um, and then you can raise more. How how many how much more time efficient is like? Uh, how long does it take for a salmon to become mature from from eggs? So if you think um, from first what we call um, first feeding, so when they place them in the ocean, usually in a net pen, it's roughly thirty months, and ours grow in eighteen to twenty months. Um, when you compare it to a land-based facility, you're still picking up about eight months. So we estimate we can produce roughly 70, 60 to 70% more salmon in, the, in a, in a land-based farm than another land-based farm farming conventional salmon. So your first crop, am I using the wrong nouns? Please correct yeah, me. Yeah, we use our first, our first production batch, if you so will. So your yeah. first production batch uh, uh, began about 19 months ago then. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Um, Pre-COVID, a whole different world. And you were just able to sell it in June. Um, yes. And so that's got to be exciting. It is. It is. We are we're very excited. Um, and so we're ramping up production. And as I said, I think when retailers and, and those that have um, concerns because of misinformation, when they actually understand the benefits and the and how we base, we protect the environment, I think that there'll be a change in sentiment because without these types of tools like biotechnology to bring a healthy protein to market without you know damage to the ocean or risk to the fish, we've got to be able to embrace methods of farming like this and biotechnology that creates a fish that can thrive in that environment. Um, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, I wish you lots of luck. Um, but uh, when you talk about expanding production, where are you in terms of how much you can produce now and how will you expand that and over what kind of a time frame? So we just announced the new site um, of a 10,000 metric ton facility in Ohio. Um, so it's about eight times the size of our farm in Indiana. And we'll begin construction later this year. Um, expect to complete construction in you know two years, and then begin harvesting fish about eighteen months after that. So it's quite a ways out. It is. It um, is. So with your current facility, how much can you produce in a given year? About as I said, about twelve hundred metric tons. Twelve hundred metric tons, but that's a really an eighteen month thing. So do we do? But that's sort of right. The but there average. are six batches in product in various stages of growth. Um, in that facility right now. And is the key to growth, does this go beyond salmon? Are you, and, and, uh, is this purely a salmon? Uh, not that there's not that one needs anything more than that. Well, I think, that, you know, we're looking at a number of different species. Shrimp could be one of them um, because there's two, we, we believe that we have two core competencies. One is biotechnology, understanding selective breeding, genetics, whether that's conventional breeding or gene editing, um, and the regulatory requirements for that. And then the other is operating in a land-based recirculating aquaculture system um, so that you're, you know, you're producing in a very biosecure environment. Yeah, what, what I mean, I presume you have backup plans if something were to, were to happen, if someone were to 
grab one of your fish and sneak it out of there or something. I mean, is, is that a, uh, that's going to be a nightmare a real, scenario. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously we have physical cyber biosecurity um, around all of our facilities. Um, and so, you know, the likelihood of that would be challenging. Yeah. Um, what And what about the Prince Edward Island uh, facility that was, uh, that you've had for quite a while? Does that get expanded? Um, no, actually, that will be our broodstock facility. And so we'll continue to raise, more, we, we breed conventional salmon and the eggs are fertilized with our Aqua Advantage salmon. And so we're producing eggs, uh, fertilized eggs, and we'll continue to, we'll turn that into a broodstock facility to be able stuff. to keep up globally. Such an interesting company. We'll see how this uh, pans out over time. We wish you a lot of luck. Uh, Aqua Advantage CEO, Sylvia Wolf, uh, joining us here on The Drill Down. Coming up next, The Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We've got a number that will really shed some light on this company uh, when The Drill Down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And have you listened to the drill down on your smart speaker yet? All you got to do is turn to your smart speaker. Maybe it's a Google device. Maybe it's an Apple device. Maybe it's an Amazon Alexa, like those things that litter my home. Say, hey, Alexa, play the drill down podcast now. And it'll happen. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at drill down pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the drill down bite. That one number that tells us a whole lot. It's not the market cap of Aqua Bounty. It's about $324 million at present day. But uh, what's interesting about this company, Isaac, is how much money they've spent to get to the point where they could actually sell a few fish. So they sold uh, $227,000 worth of fish finally, after what, decades and decades of trying to create this thing. They finally had a little bit of revenue. But they have spent- Two decades, right? Two decades. Yep. Two and, and a half. Here has- here they are uh, having spent, and here's your drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Their accumulated deficit is $157,931,822 have been spent thus far to get them to a point where they've got about $230,000 in revenues. That could buy a really nice house here in LA. $158 million? Yeah. Yeah, probably could. You know? Not that, in San Francisco. That, that Bezos mansion? In San Francisco, you're still looking at a hut. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. All right, well, you've been listening to The Drill Down. We do appreciate it. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.